And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Wednesday, April 19th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a focus on emergency communications, the Commerce Department pushes for greater utility in the 5G spectrum. Plus, how Homeland Security is marking Emergency Communications Month. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the White House is changing its tune at least a little bit on return-to-office plans for federal employees. The Office of Management and Budget expects agencies to add more in-person work, but only where it makes sense. At the same time, agencies should still keep telework going strong. All right. With what that all means, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And Drew, let's start with the OMB memo that is putting all of this out. What are they trying to say here? The idea from the memo, the main thing that the Office of Management and Budget wants agencies to take away here is that it's really going to be about a balance. For three years during the COVID-19 pandemic and following coming out of the pandemic, telework has been a lot more in use by federal agencies. And now the Office of Management and Budget is saying, okay, let's kind of make it more of a balance, keep telework where it makes sense for recruitment and retention. It doesn't have to go away, but at the same time, in-office work should be ramped up at least a little bit where it makes sense. And this is all going to be driven by data and evidence from agencies on things like hiring and other factors that can influence that. Right. So it sounds like they're trying to cut the baby in half without making any strong policy one way or the other. And why now of all times? This is coming just shortly after President Biden signed off on the end to the COVID-19 national emergency. And it's also one year after initial reentry plans from agencies who had to move back from a full telework posture to more in-person services a little bit after the pandemic. And this is also coming just a little bit ahead of Biden's plans to lift the national public health emergency in May. So there's a lot of changes on the larger scale with how the government is dealing with response to the pandemic. And I think that this is just a result of that. And isn't there also an executive order coming for the offering of child care services for federal employees, expansion of that, and maybe even for contractors also? That's correct. And I think there are just going to be a lot of changes. This is one piece of guidance from OMB, but there is likely more guidance that's going to be coming as a result of these more recent changes. All right. So put yourself in a federal employee's chair here and say, you know, well, I'm working three days a week and coming in two days or vice versa, whatever. I don't like Monday and Friday commuting. What does this all mean for federal employees in a practical sense, do you think? It's really going to depend on the individual agency. And I think there are going to be cases where things might not change for federal employees. It depends on how successfully an agency is functioning. And OMB wants the main focus to be on delivering services and focusing on agency mission. If an agency can prove with different variables, different data, different evidence that they are successful, that they are doing things as productively and as well as they can right now, then that means maybe you don't necessarily need to change your approach to telework. But if there are gaps, if there are issues with, for instance, attrition, maybe you're not getting enough quality job applicants who are coming in, 
maybe employees aren't feeling engaged or satisfied and the FEV scores have dropped a bit. Those are the areas where agencies are really going to have to take a look. If there are struggles there, then they're going to have to start increasing in-person work. Right, because the FEVs scores and now the best places to work that came out a couple of weeks ago or a week ago are not all that terrific, frankly, and some of them are horrible for a few agencies, and even the agencies that are generally good are down in a lot of scores. Right. I do think it, again, depends on the agency, but there are some that have been struggling a lot. In one example, the Social Security Administration has been having a lot of issues with staff retention, and they've come under a lot of fire from Congress about their public-facing services. There is a debate on where those issues are coming from and why they why the agency has those ongoing problems to deliver on its mission. But ultimately, that might be an example of an agency where you might see some changes coming. Sure, them and Bureau of Prisons, which right. <laughs> had really sad scores, and we're trying to look more into that one as well. Reaction to the memo, I'm sure AFGE weighed in already. There has been a lot of response to this memo. I think it was highly anticipated from the federal unions, AFGE for one, and TEU. They are supportive of the idea of, you know, this is about striking a balance. It's about trying to continue telework where it makes sense and use in-person work also where it makes sense. I think where there is a little bit of contention here is that unions and other stakeholders weren't necessarily briefed on the memo or pulled into discussions before OMB released this guidance. So I think there is a little bit of concern around, okay, how did OMB create this? And there are a couple questions coming from unions in that regard. Right. They weren't consulted and they don't like that when it comes out and they haven't been consulted if it affects their members. And of course, we know House Republicans have been pressing for pre-pandemic levels of telework That is a dial back. And what are they saying about this memo? They're saying that it really doesn't give any further detail or information. And they are, you know, still continuing to push for that return to office, that level of telework that existed before the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think there has been a lot of contention around federal telework split along party lines for the last couple of years. Republicans essentially saying that telework is causing backlogs and delays at agencies. On the other hand, you have Democrats who are saying those backlogs and delays are more caused by understaffing and underfunding. So there's this debate on where telework falls into play here. And I think that the House Republicans are going to continue pushing for this return to office. Well, it all sounds a little bit fuzzy, actually, after having heard you and having looked at that memo. What about agencies themselves, agency managers, department heads and so on? What do they have to do here, if anything? And are there any deadlines or any anything specific they've got to send in? There are a couple pretty tight turnaround deadlines from this memo The main one is that agencies are going to have to create what's called a work environment plan within the next 30 days. That's basically their approach to looking at data and evidence. So things like hiring rates or time to hire, retention of staff where there might be attrition, employee engagement, all those things that we talked about. Also general office culture. Is it positive? Are there areas for improvement? And they're basically going going to create this plan, send it back to OMB with their evidence of either why they want to continue the way they're going or where they might need to make changes where necessary. So to the individual employee, it's kind of like, let's see what happens, but I'm going to continue kind of what I've been doing that nobody's bothered me about, but that could change shortly. 
Exactly. It's really going to, again, depend on the agency. It's going to be a couple more weeks before we see any real results of this, and, and we'll just kind of see how it plays out. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. And if you are a federal employee and you're wondering what's going on, check out the Federal News Network survey. It's online now to get your input on changes to telework and return to office plans. Find that survey, fill it out, federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how Homeland Security is marking Emergency Communications Month. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Lots of things have days, like National Ice Cream Day. Lots of things have whole months, like USDA Invasive Plant Pest Month. So why not emergency communications? Emergency Communications Month is, in fact, going on right now. And for an update on what's going on in that field, we turn to the Executive Assistant Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Billy Bob Brown. Mr. Brown, good to have you with us. Well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Let's begin with a little definition here. Emergency communications used to be 4G and radio. I mean, what constitutes emergency communications? So emergency communications is really the interconnected ecosystem of information supporting the safety of the citizen. It encompasses voice, video, data, and information services in the cloud. It includes requests for assistance from citizens using 911, response coordination efforts and incident command between government response organizations, notifications or alerts and warnings that are authoritative from government to citizen, and finally, citizen-to-citizen public information exchange, which includes critical infrastructures, sharing mission-essential information for restoration, as well as information uh, by our non-governmental disaster relief organizations. So in many ways, it's a system of systems, you might say. That's exactly right. And so this idea of interoperability, that's what everyone is pursuing because these used to be stovepiped types of systems. Police had radios, and the radios worked with other radios in a given geographical area, and that was it. Otherwise, you had to pick up the phone, and the radio had no communication with the phone. The holy grail now seems to be one device that is multimodal and multi-system. You know, I like to think about interoperability from the perspective of the stakeholders. So we partner with emergency communications officials all across the nation to address interoperability. And we support a group that assembles consisting of public safety communications officials from 35 different public safety affiliated associations. That group is called SAFECOM. SAFECOM has defined interoperability as the ability to seamlessly share emergency information on demand when authorized as needed in order to uh, support emergency activities. There are five lanes of the interoperability continuum described by SAFECOM. They are governance, standing operating procedures, training and exercises, usage, and technology. Only one of those lanes is technologies. The other four lanes, or 80% of the interoperability challenge, is related to people. That's why CISA is in the business of creating partnerships. All right. And before we get to that whole partnership question, I just wanted to ask you maybe for an update on what I remember from a number of years ago was the holy grail of, say, building CAD layout, architectural information, chemical information that might be in a facility, all of this type of thing that might exist in some digital format somewhere, being able to get fed to emergency responders 
Is that further along than it was when I last checked? Uh, sure, yes, it is, and it's continuing to move along, but it's continuing to evolve kind of along a continuum. You know, we have not reached the panacea where all of that kind of seamless, you know, LIDAR information about, you know, in-building design is seamlessly available, you know, but certainly with the advent of 5G being able to deliver faster speeds of millimeter wave communications, you know, that ability to deliver that form of information to emergency responders on the go is on the way. Because you would think when, say, a train tips over, and they seem to be doing that a lot these days, if the responders knew what was being spilled precisely and knew the topology of where they were operating, they might be able to have a more effective response faster. Yeah, I argue that it makes for a more effective emergency response. You can determine which resources are necessary because you have a better understanding of what the actual situation is. We're speaking with Billy Bob Brown. He's Executive Assistant Director for the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and the whole communications piece there. And tell us about the partnership idea. I imagine it begins at home because there's lots of federal agencies, along with CISA, even other parts of DHS, that are in this fight. You know, you're 100%. And uh, CISA supports a team of partners across the federal departments and agencies. We call that the Emergency Communications Preparedness Center. And it includes 14 departments and agencies all working together to address and improve interoperable emergency communications. This team actually gathers, uh, they discuss lessons learned, they come to consensus around best practices, and then annually work together to partner and create an annual strategic assessment to improve emergency communications, which turns out to be a report that's provided to Congress annually. And I imagine that CISA brings to this the cybersecurity flavor, because as communications become more interrelated and more digital, the cyber threat, which never existed in the radio days or in the POTS days, is now the basic issue here for interoperability. Yep, that's exactly right. And as you probably remember, you know, 12 years ago, we started talking about the evolution of responder communications, you know, moving from just land mobile radio to include telephony and all of the broadband capabilities to include the use of data at the incident site. And we knew that there would come some period of time when everything was all IP enabled. We are now in what I call the messy middle, you know, as we continue to race towards all IP interconnectedness. We have to start talking about cyber vulnerabilities because all of those systems are cyber vulnerable. Somehow, no matter what the medium of transmission is nowadays, 5G or radio waves, IP, Internet protocol, is really becoming the de facto standard, correct? Yes, that is correct. And it is helpful because IP offers a different level of robustness because it is not confined to a particular circuit path. And what can the federal partnership do to help local jurisdictions? Because if you take New York City, they're probably pretty high up on the scale of sophistication of emergency communications. But you get to, you know, some of the small and rural areas, they're still maybe years behind. You're exactly right the way you sort of describe it. I mean, at every level of government, decisions to support public safety communications are made by executive decision makers, provide essential services based on the allocation of resources available. In the largest metropolitan areas where there are millions of people and businesses there, they have ample resources. You know, the smaller uh, rural jurisdictions, you know, they are challenged and they're making challenges based on the availability to include 
some commercial service availability in those areas. 18 months ago, as an example, I was in New Mexico and getting briefed by a group of state troopers, and there was a 20-mile stretch along the interstate highway. There was no commercial communications infrastructure available, and the troopers did not go into that area unless they had satellite phone capabilities. You know, so as you sort of mentioned earlier, you know, I think about how we're trying to create a whole of nation approach to interoperability. And it really is a system of systems approach, recognizing what state and local and tribal and territorial jurisdictions have based on their own executive decision makers and resources available or resources that they can put together to meet them where they are to try and solve the challenges of interoperability according to those five lanes I described earlier. There must be federal grant programs for those jurisdictions to acquire maybe the gear they need to be interoperable and and high-end in their comms. But earlier you said that 80% of the issue is people. And so with interoperability and the latest gear, there's a big training and education component. That's exactly right. And there are grants. And in fact, you know, one of the emergency communications preparedness or the federal departments and agencies getting together is to try and look at grants that are provided by federal organizations to see that those federal assistance requests have some adherence to SAFECOM's grant guidance in order to allow for jurisdictions to uh, to request some of that assistance in a way that will facilitate the improvement of interoperability. Yeah, so that Bakelite microphone hanging on a little hook in the squad car, that's kind of going the way of the bubblegum machine on top. That's right. All right. And it is Emergency Communications Month, as we indicated. What special is going on? So there is a ton going on, and I'm super excited about recognizing emergency communicators all across the nation. So we are all about partnerships. And just last week, I was at the International Wireless Expo and Convention. I participated in a key discussion for the participants, and I included on that panel discussion with two of our public safety partners, asking them about the importance of Emergency Communications Month to the state and local public safety uh, practitioners. This month, we are also launching a campaign that we call uh, Get Connected and Stay Connected uh, to discuss the importance of CISA's priority services to critical infrastructure and to governments at every level. We join our federal partners. We will celebrate 911 heroes during National Public Safety Telecommunicators Week, and uh, we are looking forward to launching this month the next in our five-year survey the SAFECOM nationwide survey, which will help do an assessment of emergency communications capabilities and interoperability nationwide. All right. A lot going on. Billy Bob Brown is the Executive Assistant Director for Emergency Communications at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the CIO of Veterans Affairs. Is his authority simply symbolic? But first, the Commerce Department pushes for greater utility in the 5G spectrum. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. 5G wireless networking has a ways to go before reaching the potential its purveyors promised. Now the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, part of the Commerce Department, has a 5G research competition running. It seeks interoperable network equipment. And for more on this, we turn to Deputy Assistant Commerce Secretary for NTIA, April Delaney. Ms. Delaney, good to have you on. 
Well, thank you. I'm excited to speak with you about all of the stuff we're doing at NTIA. All right. Well, let's talk about this contest that you're doing. You have some companies that are in the midst of this 2023 5G challenge. Tell us about the challenge and what you're trying to do with it. Well, first of all, I can say that the Department of Commerce and Secretary Raimondo have really prioritized accelerating open wireless networks to increase U.S. innovation and competitiveness and really secure a wireless network chain. And so we're hosting a competition to just really accelerate the adoption and the development of what we call open, interoperable, secure, multi-vendor 5G ecosystem. We call it Open RAND. So what this challenge will do is we're trying, through spurring more competition and diverse supply chain, we're trying to bring together through our ITS division, a competition. This 5T challenge is a two-year collaboration with the Department of Defense, the 5G and 5G office, and it's run through our Boulder office, which is a research and development lab called the Institute for Telecommunication Sciences. What we are doing is bringing together companies to really test and work together in the lab to really drive innovation. All right. And then what is it specifically that you're asking the contestants to do? And I guess there's seven companies that have won a preliminary round. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit about why it matters and what the contestants are doing. We have a handful of companies in this country that sell wireless network equipment, and their subsystems really don't work well together. It's a proprietary closed market. And mobile network operators you know, prefer to deploy these wireless networks, and there's many subparts within them. What we want to do is to kind of break apart a lot of these subcomponents that have more of a plug-and-play environment so that there is more competition and more interoperability. And in that plug-and-play environment, we will really you know, drive down costs but also allow there to be more secure and trusted networks, which is a key advantage. So what are we doing in terms of like who is involved and what we're doing? Well, DOD has really worked with us to bring about a host of different companies to come in with RU, DU, and CU components and to really work work in a lab together to see how in a cold configuration environment that we can really plug and play and really drive innovation to see how these multiple vendors can cold pair their technologies. And, you know, this is the second phase of this, and so it is an evolution on the first one. Yeah, and a quick question. You mentioned R-U-C-U-D-U. Sounds like a nursery rhyme. R-U is radio unit. What is C-U and D-U? The DU and CU are different elements that deal with both the hardware and software integration part that kind of interface together. Who would benefit from this interoperability? It's an excellent question. Consumers, because there will be more innovation and more companies that are involved. It'll also allow startups who are not large companies to be able to come in and try and be part of this ecosystem. But most importantly, I think as we break apart the supply chain, we are also able to have, as you know, there are only a handful of companies out there that really are producing radios right now in the international environment. And we want to protect some of these networks are not secure. And we want our commercial individual and security data not to be at risk. And so I think just globally, by having more equipment vendors, we'll be able to really facilitate more trusted networks across the globe and domestically. So I think both consumers, network providers, and also innovators. So it is really, you know, a triple bottom line in a lot of ways. And public-private partnerships, I think, are really important in this arena. We're speaking with April Delaney. She's Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information. It sounds like something that the emergency communications community would benefit from because, you know, they've got a real cost issue and interoperability issue and trying to provide 
emergency communications. You know, that's a very interesting thing. NTIA, across its divisions, also works with our NG911 community and our first net responder network. And yes, I do think that in the long term and maybe even the short term, open RAN technology will allow there to be more cost competitive alternatives to a closed proprietary rack. And as such, really will be able to allow different types and more affordable deployment of public safety communications. Now, I have to say, open RAN is something that people say it's not if, but when. I just came back from Mobile World Congress. You know, there is cloud RAN, there's almost open RAN, but pure plug and play is not here yet. And that is why it's really important to come to a lab and to test and to really figure out how each of these different components work together. And let's talk about how the competition works. You got 23 white papers, and then from those, you down-selected people that will get developmental research and development money? Well, I think what has happened is we had different research papers, and then through the different phases, we were able to come down to about seven different providers on Teams 1 and Teams 2 to do this cold integrations. So in this 2023 challenge, what we're doing is bringing these various providers of, you know, like Mavenir or Radisys or Capgemini or Fujitsu, you know, just these different providers from across the spectrum, different components, and to allow them, as we say, it's really important in this cold integration environment to really start speaking with one another. And the contestants that use this independent host lab really say it's an incredible opportunity Because across the globe, there are these different pilots that are happening, but to really have a lab where you can work collaboratively is amazing. For instance, in the 23 5G Challenge, the contestants will try to establish end-to-end network connections, but then the contestants will test to see if they can transfer a call from one contestant network to another. It's called mobility testing. And this is what happens when you talk on the phone when driving down the highway. The network transfers from one tower to another. Currently, this type of plug-and-play doesn't exist in the marketplace. And so what we're trying to do is just really drive innovation through this collaboration. And I have to say, we wouldn't have been able to do it without the Department of Defense because they have been very involved in looking to develop a more secure supply chain and just this robust U.S. industrial base, you know, both for, I think, our global economic U.S. leadership, but also in terms of our national security and trusted 5G infrastructure. But their ability to help us with this R&D as a U.S. agency is really incredible. And it also will help in the development of what they call open RAN standards and technologies that are in the infancy stages. Obviously, as you come together, it will be very helpful. And this idea of interoperability of equipment, does this extend upward to like Verizon and AT&T and maybe there's one or two other primary generators of 5G bandwidth? Are they interoperable at that level? It's really interesting you say that. Okay, so I just came back from Mobile World Congress, and we had global operators, we had our U.S. operators, and what it happens is the operators go to network integrators to deploy their networks, and so it will help them have more choice and what type of networks they can deploy, because now they are kind of in a closed proprietary network, you know, whether it's Nokia, or it could be two or three different types of Ericsson or what have you that are trusted vendors, but they usually come in a proprietary rack. 
And so what you'll be able to do is have more choice for them to deploy different type of networks and perhaps in a more cost-effective way. Now, this is still in the testing phase, and so I think that's why you hear from major operators, the you know, AT&T, different type of operators, that this is still in the testing phase and that they want to make sure that their quality is there and the security is there. DISH Network is now going into deployment of some open RAN as well. Interesting. And I guess a final question, what will be the outcome ultimately of the competition you're running? Will it be schematics for equipment that people can make or will it be a set of standards that anyone can build to? Well, I think this competition is really about driving innovation. And innovation, I mean that this truly is mixing and matching equipment. And so what we're hoping that comes out of this is that eventually there will be enough innovation to do major deployments, both domestically and internationally, of open RAN technologies. And in so doing, we're hopeful also that there is greater innovation in things that come out of that testing. You know, that is the end game, but in these different phases as that we're going through them, I think that it's evolutionary and they're starting to look at what will happen in the long term, you know, will be really kind of more integration as we go into 5G and 6G. And then the last thing I will say is that NTIA is also overseeing a $1.5 billion public wireless supply chain innovation fund. We call it the Innovation Fund for short. And it is separate and apart from the 5G challenge, but that also, on the same lines, seeks to drive this supply chain diversification and funding in smaller projects, grants that will allow different companies to do the same sort of thing in independent labs across the country. Our first phase of the NOFO, the Notice of Funding Opportunity, of the Innovation Fund um, will be coming out in the next month or two, and then it will continue over the next few years. All right. We're going to have you back to discuss that in detail. Meantime, April Delaney is Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and Information. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care. We'll post a link to more information about the research challenge at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, the CIO of Veterans Affairs. Is that authority simply symbolic? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Veterans Affairs Chief Information Officer is often on the sidelines of major IT acquisitions. The CIO, by law, is supposed to be involved in all of the major acquisitions, but maybe it's not. That's what the Government Accountability Office found. We get more now from the GAO's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management, Carol Harris. Ms. Harris, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. And I remember these debates. I remember the statute. And this goes back to not just the VA CIO, although there was specific legislation there, but all CIOs are supposed to have the budget. And you found that, golly, half the cases of the acquisitions you looked at, there was limited CIO involvement. Tell us more. That's right. So we found about 39% of the contract actions that we reviewed between March 2018 through the end of FY21 
did not have evidence of CIO approval. But I did want to make one point just to provide some context for your listeners is that we in the VAIG had previously found issues with VA's lack of compliance with FITARA in this regard. You know, back in 2018, we reported that VA's CIO did not review IT acquisition plans and strategies. And the IG also found that in about 70% of the cases that the CIO was not reviewing the contracts. And so in response to that, VA did transition to a new new tracking system to streamline the CIO approval process and to expand CIO access and visibility to all related IT acquisitions. And so I think that context is important because VA really has made some important progress in this area. It's shrunk that gap from 70% to 39%. And so I did want to make sure that your listeners did understand that. Right. They were looking at almost none of them. Now they're looking at a little bit more than half of them, you might say, just to put it in rough terms. Yep, that's correct. But more than just simply evidence of approval, I mean, shouldn't there be some way that the CIO can be actively involved in the planning and execution of those contracts? And then the approval is just kind of a pro forma at the end because the process leading to that stamp should have involved the CIO. Tell us more about the structure behind all of this. You know, we did a more in-depth review of 26 selected IT contract actions within FY21. And within about 14 of them, they lacked total CIO approval, total CIO involvement altogether. 13 of the 14 were actually managed by non-IT contracting offices. And so, I think that was part of the major issue. What we found was that these contracting officers just simply forgot to adhere to the department's FITAR review. It wasn't that they did it necessarily on purpose. They just were not aware of the requirements to ensure that the CIO had that awareness and that requirement to approve. Now, Veterans Affairs has, I believe, the largest IT budget on the civilian side of the government. It's either VA or Homeland Security, but they're big. They're up there, billions a year. Do we know what percentage of the IT dollars that these 14 contracts that did not have CIO involvement represent? They're in the order of like hundreds of millions of dollars. So we had to narrow the scope of our review. So unfortunately, we couldn't generalize the sample that we evaluated. However, we do know that if we found it within this select sample size, it's fair to say that it's a larger problem overall. Yeah, because a few hundred million is what every agency would love to have from the Technology Modernization Fund, for example, just to put it in context. Exactly. And so based on the findings of our review, we recommended that VA provide an automated check within their system to facilitate this compliance and remind contracting officers of VA's FATARA approval requirements. And VA did concur with the recommendation. We're speaking with Carol Harris. She's Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. And maybe the more difficult question is, is there any way of knowing whether it made any difference in the quality and delivery of the contracts and the materials and services under those contracts with or without CIO involvement? Because if it doesn't matter, then the whole Fatara presumption kind of fails. That's right. I think you just identified the scope of our next review. But All joking aside, having this full visibility into the procurement of VA's IT assets and activities is so important because it does help ensure that the CIO will be able to provide that input on the current and the planned IT acquisitions and ensure that VA isn't awarding IT contracts that are duplicative or poorly conceived. I mean, that's so critical. So you'll be looking at the effects of this lack of activity by the CIO or the lack of involvement in the future, but at this point, it's hard to tell what the effects are. 
That's correct, yes. And to what extent do we know that this is the case in other agencies? Because under FATARA, every CIO is supposed to have budgetary authority, and with that authority comes the responsibility of looking at stuff before the contracts go out. Right. I mean, we we are aware that this issue takes place across the government. Some agencies do it better than others. I think, as you noted earlier, because VA's budget is so large in IT, that's one of the reasons why we did want to focus on this department in particular. And to be honest, the idea of putting in a reminder mechanism or something or some sort of a trigger in the automated process of moving these things along, presumably they don't pass nine carbon copy forms anymore throughout the government, begs the issue of the culture in which, golly, how else would you do it without having the CIO involved? Exactly. You see, you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's so critical. I mean, another thing that we identified within this report is that we found that there were potential IT procurements that weren't necessarily labeled as IT and therefore falling under the radar of the CIO. And so actually what we found was about 881 potential IT contract actions for new awards representing about close to $400 million dollars. That categorization of the contract really depends on the predominant product or service being purchased. So if IT contracts with a minority percentage of IT spending is in place, and that most likely would not be assigned as IT. And so I think that you know also goes to your point that it's so critical that we identify these IT contracts and make sure that they're labeled appropriately and make sure that these contracting systems are tracking them correctly so that the CIO does have that full visibility into all of them. Yeah, for example, if you're buying chromatography equipment or some kind of a scanner, well, you're buying basically a really big, expensive piece of hardware, but that hardware has firmware and there's networking connectivity. I mean, there's a big piece of information technology in a computer-aided tomography machine, but that's not really an IT acquisition in the sense of case management or scheduling systems are. To your point, I mean, it is a cultural shift for these agencies, including VA, to know and understand that these really, because IT is so heavily embedded into these products, that the CIO really should be involved. Yeah, because there's also the issue that these products, the medical products in particular, are often not up to snuff in a cybersecurity sense, and they will be on the VA network. And therefore, you would think the CIO would want to know, I don't care what you're buying. If it has software and it's going to be connected to the network, we got to know about it. Exactly, because he can't protect what he doesn't know is on his network. So absolutely. So your main recommendation was get the CIO involved, roughly. Exactly. Yes. I mean, VA did recognize that, you know, that the mislabeling of the the contracts was an issue. And they did inform us that they are developing processes to catch these procurements from falling through the cracks. And so we believe that if VA is effectively implementing what they say they're going to, then those efforts really could provide the CIO with that additional visibility. And they agree with you, essentially, in this whole effort. Exactly. Yes, they did. So maybe it'll go down from 39%, let's hope for 20% or 10% next year. Yep, we're going to keep chipping away at this. Carol Harris is Director of Information Technology Acquisition Management at the GAO. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General is suing the Council of Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency. 
Joseph Kafari claims Siggy's Integrity Committee is harassing him with endless probes. It's not the first time Kafari has bristled at oversight from Siggy and others. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, I guess you can't make this stuff up. What is this unusual lawsuit all about here? So Kafari and some of his top aides are suing the Siggy's Integrity Committee over what they say is a campaign of distraction and harassment that Kafari has been enduring, he claims, since he assumed the IG position, DHS IG position, back in July 20. 2019. The lawsuit alleges many of the complaints investigated by Siggy's Integrity Committee stem actually from Kafari's efforts to reform DHS OIG. And he's saying that these complaints are causing substantial interference with his ability to carry out his official duties. He's being represented by a law firm that describes itself as viewing the administrative state as a threat to the Constitution. And so they're actually taking aim at the constitutionality of the Integrity Committee as part of this suit. So it's a pretty pretty unusual one here, having one IG going up against his fellow IGs here. Yeah, and I sense there's a little bit of Trump, non-Trump issue on this because he did come in in the midway point of the Trump administration, so there's always that. And who specifically are the defendants in the Kafari suit? Members of the Siggy Integrity Committee. That includes Kevin Winters, Amtrak's Inspector General, who serves as chairman of the Integrity Committee, And Robert Storch, DOD's inspector general, he was actually just confirmed recently, who serves as vice chairman of the Integrity Committee. And there are also several other IGs who serve on the committee and are also defendants in this case. Now, Siggy declined to comment on the complaint beyond saying they're aware of it and they look forward to working with the Department of Justice on the matter. The lawsuit aims to cut off really any current or future inquiries by the Integrity Committee into Kafari and his aides' actions. And it, as I mentioned before, it challenges the lawfulness of the Integrity Committee itself. And you are reporting there's a history here. What has Kafari allegedly done in Siggy's Integrity Committee's view? These two have been at odds quite a bit previously. Yeah, so the Integrity Committee basically exists to take complaints against IGs and and their top staff and then either investigate them or set them aside or refer them to the Department of Justice in some cases or whatever else. Actually, the Integrity Committee has had to investigate 63 cases where they've sent requests for information to Kafari and his aides since September 2019. The complaint states that about half of those have been closed with no action or any adverse findings against Kafari, but 13 remain pending. And there are also 18 supplemental inquiries that are still standing out there. Back in October 2020, Kafari actually sent a letter to the Integrity Committee, essentially claiming he's a whistleblower who made protected disclosures to Congress and the Integrity Committee about serious misconduct that he claims to have uncovered at DHS OIG. The Integrity Committee was in, was actually investigating Kafari at the time, some complaints that were sent back against him for investigating that misconduct. And so Kafari then pushed back against the Integrity Committee in that letter, claiming that they're biased against him just for investigating him. So there's been some back and forth dating way back to 2020 when Kafari first started. Yeah, it sounds almost like spy versus spy if they weren't talking about it. And what are the details of the current probes into Kafari from Siggy? What are they saying he did? The lawsuit, interestingly, it's it's Kafari's complaint, but it actually sheds some light on the, the complaints against him. As I mentioned, 63 requests for information from the Integrity Committee to Kafari and his aides over the last four years. That's a pretty 
substantial amount for one IG. The complaint actually shows that the Integrity Committee is actively probing the situation around the missing Secret Service texts from January 6, uh, 2021, from the Capitol riot. The Integrity Committee actually sent Kristen Fredericks, chief of staff to Kafari, a request for information on those missing Secret Service texts as recently as April 3rd, just a day before the lawsuit was filed in the Eastern District of Virginia. So there's some back and forth going on right now over these missing Secret Service texts, what Kafari and his staff presumably knew about this and and the integrity committee is going after that now i should mention that john vecchio the senior litigation counsel for kafari says that the secret service situation is not what's driving this he says it's the relentless drumbeat of different allegations that are taking up Gafari's time. So that's that's the counter there. Right, sure. And anything having to do with January 6th, of course, that's like throwing baking soda into vinegar. The whole thing is going to bubble up all over the place. So what's going to happen next here? And are some of the good government groups weighing in on this? There must be people outside taking up sides here. For sure. Uh, the, the Project on Government Oversight, as, as you know, has actually called for Kafari to be fired for a range of different reasons. And they're saying that this case here that Kafari has brought forward threatens to upend independent oversight of IGs because that's the whole point of Siggy and the Integrity Committee. They've called for him to be fired over the Secret Service text situation because Democrats in Congress and, of course, Pogo alleged that Kafari knew about this for as much as a year, knew about the missing Secret Service texts and didn't investigate them and didn't tell anyone for up to a year. That's the issue there. And as I mentioned at the top, the Integrity Committee's constitutionality is being challenged here as part of this lawsuit. You know, it's not a big committee. It's it's supported by about four full-time staff in addition to the folks who lead it. Last year, they opened 80 cases and closed 67 Folks I talk to say they have, have a reputation for actually not doing much of anything about oversight of IGs as opposed to what Kafari is saying, but that's that's just the reputation so far. They're going after the integrity committee here. It'll be interesting to see how this case shapes oversight of the IGs or doesn't as it goes forward. What do we know about what Kafari is seeking in the lawsuit to enjoin them from probing him or is he seeking damages? He's not seeking damages. He's seeking to enjoin them from probing him, both current and future probes, to cut those off. He is taking issue with the fact that he he and his aides have to represent themselves in their personal capacity when they have to answer to probes from the integrity committee. This is somewhat of a common practice having, you know, you can't rely on agency attorneys to defend yourself. You have to rely on your own personal attorney. He's saying that's not fair. So that's that issue here. And then, as I mentioned, the lawsuit takes issue with the Integrity Committee's structure and funding, alleging it is an unconstitutionally structured entity. Because of the presence of Amtrak's IG and others, those aren't presidentially appointed folks. And so they're saying that the Integrity Committee violates the appointments clause of the Constitution. Right. So there's a lot of different things going on here. You might say he feels railroaded by Amtrak's IG. <laughs> think that's a good one, yeah. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out that story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, how Homeland Security is marking Emergency Communications Month. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 